mice. I've always had cats. When I was a baby, we had a prolific tabby named Mittens, who, as the story goes, had 42 kittens. She was gray with white feet and chest. I don't remember her, but our photo album shows her lounging on the driveway in Joshua Town Road or on the big wraparound porch, a black and white snapshot of her on a chair in a corner of some room. Then there was Clementine, the shy calico who came into our lives like a breeze and then disappeared just as easily. Then at the big farmhouse in Sterling, Massachusetts was Bart, a big fluffy white cat my father brought home from the bar one night. Kay and I were in the bathtub when dad brought him in. This teeny little tiny cotton ball of fur. We didn't know where his face was or where his tail was. He was hit by a school bus driver who came to pick Kay up for third grade. Devil, a velvety black and gray striped tom with heavy-lidded bedroom eyes, came from Ballock's Garden Center in East Haddam. My mother brought him home one night after her waitressing job when Kay and I were already in bed, and she let him roam around the upstairs. He cried and mewed, and when we called our mother to ask what the noise was, she said, Oh, it's just a moth. Terrified when that four-legged moth jumped on my bed, I screamed and Kay cried, and eventually we were told the truth. It took at least two hours for us to calm down. Devil moved with us from that hovel in East Haddam to the house in Lyme, and he fought all the other cats in the neighborhood and lost an ear for his trouble. My mother cried when we found him under the porch, stiff and dead for three days. We had to take the transom window out of the cellar in order to get him out from under the porch. He had been trying to get into the house after fighting with some kind of animal. She felt guilty because she never cared for him anyway and would never take him to see a vet. Tigger was my first cat. She was one of a litter from the Stones cat lollipop, and my father let me take her home with us after he had been drinking out on the lawn with John Stone. An orange-white cat with crossed eyes, Tigger was easily the most stupid of cats, probably the victim of years of inbreeding. She got pregnant at least twice a year and all of her kittens were born dead, their furless skin translucent and blue. My sister was turning into a teenager and already drifting away from home, and on nights when I wasn't sleeping at the rocks or the stones, I played with Tigger, dressing her in doll clothes or making special cat food plates with kibble sprinkled on top. She tolerated that until she was bitten by a wild animal outside and became paralyzed. We had to put her to sleep right before one of my mother's softball games, and I sobbed and sniffled through the whole game until my mother barked at me to stop embarrassing her with my whining. Sassy, the Siamese, was one of my father's drunken finds, another one of his drunken finds, died young of leukemia. She was Kay's cat, and the only thing that she cared about in the house, and when Sassy was gone, so was Kay. Not long after, my mother threatened my father with divorce, and when Dad came home from his treatment program and Kay was safely off to college in Vermont, we got Andrew. Andrew was different from the start. He cost money. A Blue Point Siamese from a breeder across the river, Andrew had personality to spare. I was sick for most of my preteen and teenage years, and Andrew became my number one caregiver, sleeping on my pillow and waking up with me when Mom shuffled half asleep down the hall in the dark to give me one of my many medications in the middle of the night. He happily submitted to dress-up games, trips in my bicycle basket, and was the official tester of the fruits of my convalescent crafts, catnip mice. 
Sybil came next, another Siamese Dad brought home. This time he wasn't drunk, but Mom was mad at him just the same. Sybil was a needy little thing and bonded with everyone except Mom, even after I left for college and then Dad left for his new life. Andrew and Sybil lived to be almost 20 years each, and I cried for a full day when Mom called me in Providence to say Andrew had died, hit by her own car, and again five years later when Sybil struffled, suffered a terrible stroke, howling mercilessly and wandering the hallways at my mother's house until Mom and Gordy relieved her of her suffering. By that time, I had cats of my own. Mr. Kitty, a prince among kitties, had been with me since I had struck out on my own. Mr. came also from Ballack's Garden Center, which by then had become rather famous for their world-class farm mousers. I had to order him in advance while he and his orange siblings were still in utero. Jack Diesel, Kitty Mechanic, that was his full name, was the son of a famous New York Times sitting cat at the Hadlime Country Store whose name was Diesel. When traveling from one father, mine, to a stepfather, Gordy, on Father's Day, we passed two children on the side of the street, each with a kitten in outstretched hands, shouting, Free kittens for sale! Jack looked just like his father, huge with dusty yellow barn-smelling fur and almond-shaped golden eyes that rarely blinked, and I had to have him. We moved to Portland not long after and discovered the joys of strays. Elvis, a tattered tabby in hues of brown and black and gray, lived out by the dumpster of our apartment building. He appeared just a month or two after we arrived, and every morning he waited outside our door to greet us with his chirping meow, looking anxiously for either food or pets. He had certainly seen better days, with one eye drooping lower than the other and his tail bent at an uncomfortable angle at the very end. Elvis was always there, no matter what time you looked out the glass door, and soon the whole building was taking turns feeding him and spending a little quality time with him out on the stairs. Even Mr. Kitty befriended him, the two of them sitting on the lawn with a cautious yet polite closeness. They never fought, although I did see them gang up on one of the prissy cats from the other apartment building across the street and run her out of the courtyard. I called Elvis our guardian angel and attributed our good luck in the new city to him. He accepted my, affectionate, my affection quite willingly and worked hard to charm us into considering taking him inside for the winter. But late one night, just before the colder weather hit, before Patrick got home from work at the restaurant, I heard a terrible yowling. I looked out the window, but without my glasses, I couldn't see what was going on. It didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before, and it ran through me like a bolt of lightning. Moments later, Patrick arrived, tearful, with Mr. Kitty tucked under his arms. The cat's eyes were huge. Albus had been hit by a car and was dead in the street. He found Mr. Kitty on the curb, mourning him with that painful and horrifying cry. Patrick picked up Elvis's cold, broken body and wrapped him in a towel and put him in the dumpster he used to guard and used my watering can to wash the blood out of the street. We put out one last bowl of kibble and lit a candle in the big window for our guardian angel cat soul. I put up a note on our building's bulletin boards by the mailboxes in an obituary of sorts. The next day, the woman who owned the prissy cats across the street came and took the bowl of kibble away. Things went sour for us after that. We separated, and then Patrick got sick. Within the year, we had moved back to Providence to regroup. Back in our teeny attic apartment on Transit Street with the same jobs at restaurants in the university was another cat who stole our affections.
George, who lived across the street at that brown house, which we were pretty sure was a halfway house, was a big gray boy with white feet, chest and nose, with thick fur and a cloudy smell of spent cigarettes. He didn't meow or purr, but was sweet and loving and spent most of his time outside in our driveway. Hillary, our best friend and landlady, had three fancy Siamese ladies who disliked him intensely and ran him out of the backyard at every opportunity, but he stood his ground on the tiny porch and back door. George wanted very much to join our family, and more than once I found him asleep in our apartment, on my bed between the pillows like he'd always been a part of the family, having climbed into the bathroom window after Jack Diesel and Mr. Kitty. But he was always sent home across the street to Evelyn, his person in that brown house, usually after he ate part of a catnip mouse or nibbled the leaves off of fresh herb plants growing in the window box. We made plans to take him with us if we ever bought a house and moved away from Transit Street. Evelyn called for him in her gravelly voice, but George went home when he was ready or when I carried him across the street. He was almost always waiting for me in the driveway when I walked home from work and we'd sit together on the stairs and decompress. He would lean up against me as I stroked his big gray head and breathed in his acrid smoky fur and told him about my day, which was always like the day before, typing, fixing someone's computer, photocopies, book orders, dealing with some student's parent on the phone. One fall, Evelyn bleached him with peroxide when she thought maybe he had fleas. His gray fur turned brown in spots and it took months for it to grow out. I put a flea collar on him after that. He was a great friend and a comfort, and he was killed by a car when a student's off-leash dog chased him into the street. I heard people talking, Who's Izzy? outside my window, and went outside to see what they were talking about. I found him in our driveway where he must have been headed, running from this eager black dog who continued to bounce around the prone cat. George's body was already heavy and loose, his eyes wide open in terror, and his small pink tongue, still wet, poked out from behind his bared teeth. I tried to, but I could not close those eyes. Evelyn comforted me as I sobbed uncontrollably. I wrapped him in a piece of soft fleece, and then I dug a deep hole under his tree at that brown house. We buried him with a catnip mouse, a handful of kibble, and a wire toy I had bought him for Christmas. He was a good cat, Evelyn said absently. Yes, I said, wiping my face with my grimy hand, smelling the sour city soil. He was a very good cat. Catnip mice. Fabric. Polished cotton is good. Or flannel, but really any cotton scraps will do. Yarn. Catnip. Cosmic catnip is our favorite. Needle and thread. Cut a circle and then fold the fabric in half to make a shape that resembles a mouse. A triangle or a little bag will do if you're not familiar with the stuffed mouse shape or if your cats are vegetarians. Turn inside out and sew up most of the mouse, starting at what would appear to be the nose. Turn right side out and fill with catnip. Add a piece of yarn. Always use natural fibers like wool or cotton or leather shoestring for the tail and finish stitching up the back end, including attaching the tail. Run the needle and thread through the nose of the mouse a few times for whiskers. Fray the ends. Keep the finished mice in the fridge in a Ziploc bag to keep them fresh or run the risk of losing your work to junky cats who will find your stash no matter where you hide it in the house. 
thank you for listening. For more information about the recipes you've heard here, including author notes, photos, secret tips, and more, please visit twochocolatecakes.com. That's two, the word two, chocolatecakes.com.